Hey everyone, welcome to the Passion and Purpose podcast hosted by myself, Louis Giglio. I recently had the honor of interviewing John Mark Comer, who's the founding pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, and someone who needs no introduction to people of faith all across the world. I am sure you were leaning in to this episode already thinking, I love this guy and I love the way that God has used him in my life. He is a teacher and a writer with Practicing the Way and the best-selling author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. His newest release is Live No Lies, and he's also authored many other best-selling books. And for my money, uh, the books have great content, but John Mark's books are also some of the best-designed books on planet Earth. I get inspired just by looking at the cover, seeing the way things are laid out. It's really amazing art and incredible content. And that's why he's impacted the spiritual development of this generation so powerfully. And in this episode, he talks about what it means to live and lead like Jesus. We discuss faith, culture, hurry, joy, and how to walk with God intimately and intentionally. It's such a gift to have him on the Passion and Purpose podcast, and I'm thrilled for you to check it out. So here's my conversation with John Mark Comer. Well, I'm excited to be on today with John Mark Comer, who is a leader from Portland, Oregon, and a little bit of transition. I'll let you talk about that. So how to define exactly um, how you're living out your vocational side of life right now. But you've been a pastor, a teaching pastor, a visionary leader of uh, a great growing church in Oregon, and particularly in the city of Portland. And most everybody that's on board with us right now knows, oh, John Mark Comer, you don't need to introduce John Mark Comer. Everybody knows the Red Book. And it's become sort of <laughs> synonymous with life. And it's so funny, John Mark. Welcome, by the way, and thank you so much for being on uh, today. Yeah, what a joy to chat. But uh, I released a book a few, well, about a month ago now, and you know we had been charging pretty hard in the weeks going into the release, and then we were in that window of having to tell people around the world, most of whom have never heard of me, that there is a message and that we really believed in the message and we felt like the message would help people. I knew it helped me. And we'd gone really, really hard for a few weeks. And then Shelly and I were like, man, we're just going to pull the plug right here. And we're going to disappear for a week and (laughs) let the wind of God do what the wind of God can do. We got where we were going on this beautiful beach and we got our chairs all set up. And then these people came and sat right in front of us in these chairs that, you know, they could have sat in those or those or those or those. Of course they did. Of course they got the ones right in front of us. (laughs) And then the lady pulls right out of her bag your book, and she just puts oh, it no. right about here <laughs> so in the view for the entire rest of that day and the next day. Somehow this happened repeatedly. Oh. But I said to Shelly, isn't it amazing? Okay, no responsibility for that. Isn't it amazing how God has carried this message around the world? It's really resonated with people. Um, I think I think you sent me a copy of the book in 2019, I want to say, is when it arrived into my world. So I might have my timing off because we're all a little off on when the years were now. Yeah, that's but right. what an incredible thing to come into 2020. And I know that everybody I know 
at some point that is following Jesus has referenced this book and this message. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today, obviously. But I want to just catch up with you a little bit. You're living in Portland, Oregon, and that feels crazy to me right now, given the uh, little snapshot of you know the world that I've seen through the lens of the media, which obviously always highlights the worst part of everything. But what's it been like living in Portland? What's the temperature, the climate like there now? And what kind of challenges is that provided for you as a human being and as a parent and a husband and the leader of a church in the last little while? Yeah, you know, it's been the most difficult year, I think, of my life, for sure, of my pastoral leadership. And, uh, you know, what you see on the news, all of that is pretty much real, but it's not like it's the whole city. So people are like, is it safe to drive through Portland or whatever? Yes, of course. But it's it, it was pretty real. I and mean, we had over 100 days of straight riots. The city last summer was literally on fire. And what you don't see in the news is the level of spiritual oppression over the city. You know, it's one of the first things that people would note about Portland for years, you know, in kind of Christianese language, people would say, oh, this is a dark city, or I feel a dark presence. And that's very much true. That's rooted in the ancient history of the city and the place and the soil. But something opened up last summer. I can only think of it as like, um, I've, I'm not even sure what I think about how to read Revelation, but there's that, you know, story in Revelation where it's like the pit, the abyss is opened and all these creatures are released for a time. And at a spiritual level, like however to read Revelation, that's like at a symbolic spiritual level, that's, that's what it felt like living here, you know? And we live just about five minutes from where all the riots were. So we're, you know, we're pretty close to all of that and feeling that living in Portland was just a form of kind of suffering love through the last year. So things are going better for sure. The upside to it is I think the city has been significantly humiliated and broken. And, you know, if you were to rewind a couple of years ago, you know, in particular before the last election cycle, Portland was kind of in its golden era and it was like the city could do no wrong and we're the most overeducated city in America, 20-somethings from all over the world were moving here, the best food, better than New York in my opinion, like coffee, beer, architecture, design, incredible outdoors culture. I mean, it's just like it was the place, you know, not at a spiritual level, but at a just like cultural hedonism. It was just like the mecca of hedonistic millennial, Gen Z, urbanite kids, you know? And this really exposed the superficiality of the kind of progressive, secular, native worldview that it is incredibly fragile and it has cracks all through the foundation. And so I think there's a real opening to the gospel. We've seen a lot of people coming on Alpha, even through just this bizarre era, you know? with no background in church, but there's just some kind of an opening right now. I think the, the erudite among us are realizing, man, this, we're not going to create our little, you know, Scandinavian utopia without God. It's, um, it's not going to happen. So there's, there's a conspiracy of God afoot amidst, I think, a lot of demonic activity. 
You know, it's so interesting. That's the first time that I've heard someone say something since last summer that really resonated with an experience that Shelley and I had. We were sitting out on our terrace, and we live in uh, close enough proximity to the city that when things are tense and there's a lot of uh, sirens going here and there, and there's you know shouting in the streets, we're kind of close enough to that to feel it, hear it. And we were sitting out on our terrace, and we were all of a sudden just aware, the way I said it to her and, uh, and to a few friends, it felt like the sky just was just ripped open and hell just came thundering into our city. And I can remember yes. the, the it, not, not like in an instant, in a moment, but over a, a, an hour's period of time, it felt like something I've never sensed in this city. And I was born in this city, obviously lived in Texas for a while, been back in the city for a long time, but it felt like there was just a, a shredding of the skies, and all of a sudden, all the forces of the darkness came rushing in. And this was already after the, a few major catalytic events. But in the next 24 to 48 hours in our lives, personally, a lot of upheaval happened, and a lot of things turned upside down, and we felt like we were dodging you know, things for a minute. And that seems like it subsided somewhat. But the blow was so heavy, it has left, you know, more than a bruise. It's left a, a permanent right. a indention wound. into the fabric of our city. And I'm not really sure I'd experienced that before. Not in, in our city, at least. I'd felt that in other cities in the world, for sure, and experienced that in other places and other countries in the world, but not sitting on my front porch. And I still don't think uh, we know what the fallout of that's going to be. So as a leader, there's no roadmap, there's no blueprint, there's only your ability to put your ear to the spirit and to say, what's next? And I found that to be a challenging place to be, but I've also found it to be a really exciting place to be. And I wonder how you're navigating. I know you don't have any tools because none of us have a, a toolbox for how to, you know, lead into this next season of life, but what are some of the things that you're finding helpful as you're taking steps forward and leading people forward? Ah, man, that's a hard question to answer. You know, at first, there have been like kind of three or four waves of the kind of compound trauma. You know, wave one was a global pandemic, and, you know, hearing we might not be able to gather as a church for some people were saying five years or three years or, you know what I mean? which is terrifying. I have no experience for, I mean, the church has been through pandemics before, but not with a modern grasp of microbiology where you don't see people for two years and you just, everything's over the internet, you know, and we're a pretty analog church kind of on purpose. So man, that was terrifying, you know, and they were all, we've done great. The church has come through beautifully, but in those early months, it was like, is it going to be me and a podcast when this whole thing is over? We had just, you know, bought an old church building. We had finished the remodel three weeks after COVID broke out and everything shut down. So I'm like, what in the world? Are we going to lose our new building? You know, so all this fear and that called up like a, a creative and courageous kind of leadership muscle. That was probably when we were at our best, really yeah. brought our church together. The outpouring of generosity from our church toward one another, the way people held together in community. Our church is really built around um, kind of a network of home communities. 
And that really turned out to not be like visionary kind of PR. It actually was who our church was and that held our church together, which was really cool. Um, then kind of wave two was last summer and this historic moment of kind of reckoning over racial injustice that was both beautiful and devastating at the same time. It was a long awaited, much overdue, necessary reckoning for our nation that I fully support. And at the same time, the way it divided people, wrecked relationships and, and confused a lot of people and allowed other secular ideologies outside of, of course, the Imago Day of all people being made in the image of God, let other ideologies in, um, was just devastating. And then kind of wave three was the election. And in our, in our city, that was experienced because Portland is such a crazy far left, homogenous kind of political echo chamber. What you have a lot of is a lot of young people that would be more on the progressive side. In our church, they'd be pretty center left because they're followers of Jesus. But politically, their sensibilities would be more democratic. And then a lot of them are from the South or Middle America, and their parents would be much more kind of right-leaning. And so there was a massive generational pain between, you know, I mean, literally people that haven't talked to their parents since last June, you know, and just devastating kind of relational rupture. And then the fourth wave, I would say, was the kind of sustained crisis of then we're just like, Turns out that COVID didn't follow the Gregorian calendar. And January 1, it wasn't like, cool, we made it through the apocalyptic year. Let's all have a great time now. It turns out that we're halfway through 21 and we're still not meeting as a church, really. And there's still, you know, so things are coming better, but just that long of perseverance. So I think in the early days, I was, I was like really leaning into muscles of courage and creativity and innovation and what does the future of the church look like? And then it kind of turned into more of just like the long obedience in the same direction, the perseverance. You know, there's a difference between a short-term crisis and then living through a sustained crisis. You know, the whole line everybody's been talking about that all through World War II, Churchill, for all of his issues, would have a long leisurely dinner every night and smoke a cigar, you know, <laughs> because it's a sustained crisis, which calls for a different posture than a short-term crisis, you know? And I remember a bunch of us on our staff listened to Keller's, gave this, Tim Keller gave this little 15-minute spiel back in April or something on how two years after 9-11, there was a wave of pastoral resignations in New York City. Yep. It's like these leaders rallied to the crisis, got their people through, and it destroyed them. And they got, ended up out of, in that case, out of ministry. And so that really impacted us, like how this, this, is, a, this is a long-term crisis. This is going to take us a couple. I mean, God willing, we're you know, really close to starting to gather again as a church, but it's going to be a while before we're back to any semblance of what it used to be. You know, So yeah, what, what kind of leadership? I think at some point I'm less interested right now in being cool or creative and more interested in still being here five years from now, faithful to Jesus. hundred percent. You know, I, I know for Shelly and me, we, we're in a demographic where we're not really doing a whole lot of, you know, social media, Instagram live, Hey, welcome to our living room stuff anyway. But once the quarantine hit, it seemed like everybody's had their own evening variety show. You know, it was like every night, welcome <laughs> to our house and we're going <laughs> to do whatever it is for the next hour. And, I think part of it's been 63, but I looked at Shelly and I said, man, alive, this is not a, a sprint we are, we are in. This is a marathon. 
You know, we are not going to go yeah. on Instagram Live every day and try to tell everybody what's what, um, because this is going to be a long arc journey. But even in yeah. that, I thought long arc journey meant, you know, till October, maybe November, maybe December, I know. you know. And I think when what you're talking about, that fourth uh, dimension you talked about was the one that really came hard because it was like, wow, we're still not in the clear. And there still is this demand for leadership that outstrips experience and techniques and anything that's worked in the past, there's a demand for someone to rise above. And someone asked me the other day, they said, what do you think is the key to leadership? And I said, I don't know. I know that you just have to keep rising above. That's what leaders do. They rise above whatever is happening and call people to Mm. see something greater, believe something greater, hope and long and aim towards something greater. And once that that last little bit came, I think people were tanked. And I sadly agree with you. And I think that in the next year, it's going to be shocking to people how many pastors um, bail out. And, you know, all the conversation in the church world has been about, are the people coming back? And I'm like, hey, that's that is important. I think the more important question is, are the leaders, are the the shepherds, are the pastors coming back? And a lot of them are not. And I want to. I was talking to a pastor, young pastor, yesterday, and he said the greatest thing that's happened to me in the last few weeks is just receiving a word from God for my own life that it is worth it. And it was kind of a re up for them. And I think for me, that's what this has done. It's taken me back to my calling. Nothing caught on fire in the house, but when I was 20 years old, it it might as well have been a burning bush in my bedroom when God spoke over my life, this is what I'm calling you to do. And that has been so prevailing for me, John Mark, that it's carried me through every storm and every low valley um, and every time I've wanted to quit. And I didn't really want to quit ministry much until I'd planted a local church, and then it got a whole lot more real. (laughs) And there have been a few days where I've been like on my way to quit. Not recently. I don't want to scare anyone at our church, but... um, it's a different magnitude of leadership and responsibility, and I think your calling yeah. is what anchors you. And for yeah. me, 2020 was back to my calling. Like, where where did we yeah. start? Where did I start with God? And am I still at the place I started with God? And do I still hear His voice speaking over me? I want you to proclaim the gospel to your generation And am I still willing to say yes, even though I'm tired, it's been a long year, and I'm hoping, like you, to be around five years from now. And if someone's listening to us right now and they're saying, I'm right where you are, what's one encouragement that you guys could share with me to make sure that I am around five years from now, what would your encouragement to them be? Yeah, I mean, well, let me just share it in my own life. Last spring, I felt the Spirit in prayer speak over me this simple line, the motivation must be love. And I was thinking about that line in Thessalonians where he writes about, you know, your labor prompted by love, your work motivated by faith. Yeah. And how often, you know, this is a pastoral example, not for all people listening, but in our job, almost more than any other job, 
it's so easy to do the right thing for all the wrong reasons, you know, because we're doing good work. We're preaching the gospel of Jesus or teaching the scriptures or discipleship or whatever. But man, it is so easy to do all of that for all sorts of wonky reasons of ambition or envy or platform or just really goofy stuff. And in particular, now that I'm writing and some people care about what I'm saying beyond just the local church that I'm a servant of, that can really mess with your heart, you know? So I realized that, you know, it's that whole posture, like when you're in a period of suffering, flip the question from how can I get out of this to what can I get out of this? Because this whole thing is out of our control and there isn't really a path out. And even if I were to quit the job as a pastor and go do something else that is in, right now feels easier. That's an illusionary escape. It's not a. It's not a call from God. It's not a path of discipleship. And so I realized, man, if I were to flip that question, I can't control COVID. I can't control when this pandemic is over, or what happens in the culture wars, or what's the future of Western civilization, or is there a future of Western civilization? Which living in Portland last summer was a legitimate question on my mind. I can't control any of that. I have to just let that go. What can I get out of this? This could be the most extraordinary moment of my spiritual formation in my whole life. I could be your age. I could be in my 70s, 80s, 90s. And people could say, what made you you? Like, where did you get this depth of intimacy with God, this fabric of character, this resilience, this agape? Um, You know, how did you get free of your ego and your narcissistic impulses that all of us start with? And maybe I could say, well, you know, there was this year, 2020. Hmm. I'm sure you've read about it in the history <laughs> books. And it was horrific and traumatic and hard and exhausting and unpleasant. But God used that. Something broke in my heart and set me free. So if you, if you think about the entire spiritual journey of discipleship to Jesus, this is one way to frame it, as moving off of what one psychologist I love calls the egoic operating system, meaning where you're just basically run by your ego, by what you want, what you need, what feels good, what makes you happy and look good and feel good, whatever your motivation is. It's about you moving on to agape, as love is defined by Jesus, self-giving, suffering, sacrificial, joyful love for Mm -hmm. another. If that's the spiritual journey of, of the way of Jesus, from the egoic operating system to agape, one way of framing that story, man, what a gift this year has been for me because Honestly, my job, I don't enjoy it really at all right now. With any job, there's hard parts (laughs) to it. But man, last year and a half, it's like so my therapist has this three levers of burnout in life. And it's like um, burnout is a function of high responsibility, low control, low reward. And most of the time, pastoral work is high responsibility, low control, high reward. So it's a ton of work, but there's very little control. We don't create widgets or run companies. We're trying to get people of their own free will (laughs) to do something against their flesh, to take up their cross, deny themselves, follow Jesus. And by the way, give to our church so I can get a paycheck too. (laughs) You know, low control. We cannot control people. These are not widgets. We're not, we're just invitation leaders, example invitation. But normally it's high reward. There's this sense of we're together and God is with us and God is changing lives. This last year, it was like, we're not together. 
most of the feedback I get is people who hate me, angry at me. Everything I do, I get criticized for, no matter what position I take or decision I make on everything from mass to justice to politics. If I say this, if I say that, if I don't say anything, doesn't matter, I will get attacked. It is so, like the reward <laughs> is almost non-existent. And so, man, what an invitation. And that's exhausting, but what an invitation. This is a long answer, I'm sorry, but for me to move off the egoic operating system. So the spirit just said to me, the motivation must be love. Right. And that's one of about half a dozen things that I've identified over the last year that I really feel the spirit of Jesus is trying to transform in my inner man. And I just want to consent. And there's a couple other things, developing emotional resilience, there's developing hopefulness. There's a few other things, becoming a non-anxious presence that I really feel the spirit of Jesus like is targeting in me through this crisis. And I just want to consent. I don't want to miss this opportunity. I want to give my full consent to the spirit of God. So whenever this whole thing is over, whatever over even looks like, when however it all plays out at an external level, at an internal level, God has deeply formed me into a greater capacity to carry the image of God. So I think that's the question for all of us is, identify what God is trying to do in your heart, in your formation, consent to it. Don't fight it. Don't escape it. Don't go into Netflix. Don't try to, you know, engineer a life again. Just say yes to what the spirit of Jesus is doing and then persevere. I was listening to this wonderful sermon by Charlie Dates in Chicago on James chapter one and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. And he had this great little riff and he's a brilliant preacher where he said, you don't think your way into maturity. You don't read your way into maturity. You don't church, you persevere your way into maturity. Wow. And I thought, wow, you know, maturity is a function of long obedience in the same direction. So that's, I think that's the call for the moment. How do we identify what is God trying to do? I've written up six things. I pull it out of my journal every Sabbath and I look at these six things. Second, consent, God, yes, do this work. How do I cooperate? And third, persevere, just keep going. Yeah, don't give up. Follow Jesus. Through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. When uh, your book came into my world, we were on our way to a pretty significant Mount Everest that we felt like the Lord had called us to to launch into the 20s. Kind of is all a little bit jumbled up in the rearview mirror because we were launching into the 20s on New Year's at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, 65,000 people. And it was wow. one of the most powerful, uh, and actually the, the the two days that followed, one of the most powerful and a few of the m- most powerful moments of my life, a um, few of the most otherly, you know, heavenly markers of our journey. And we didn't know exactly what was on the other side of the curtain, of course. Um, we didn't know that would be the last mass gathering of believers and in the year. And um, we didn't know that would be the great assembly if there is one for that entire year. Yes. And still hasn't been anything quite like it even into this year yet. But we were on a mission. And like we've done with Passion for 23 years, we've given everything we have to this vision of seeing a generation make a 180 shift. And that's really what passion's about. If people ask, what is passion? Is it an event at the end of the year? It's really a hope that people will make a turn from it's all about me to it's all about Jesus. 
And that's what passion yeah. is shrunk down in one thing. It's this is how you make your life count is make let God help you make that turn. And it's a process yeah. for all of us for all of life. But we were full throttle. Our team was full throttle. And then you send me this book that says The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And I didn't feel like we were <laughs> hurrying to the bins, but I definitely felt like all my skin was in the game. And so I, I thought, oh, okay, immediately I felt resistance and um, to the idea because I'm like, I'm too leveraged right now. I feel like maybe a framework of Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, this is the do or die moment. This is the all in or all out moment. This is where I put everything on the table. And we'd been living in that zone for a season of like, Lord, if you don't come through, there, this is not going to work. If this is too big for us, too much for us, but you can do it. But we came through that season, obviously got into 2020, and I began to wonder, why is everybody gravitating towards this book so strongly? And I began to tap into what you were actually saying in the book, and it really resonated with me on a level of understanding hurry in the sense of what that really does to the soul. And so unpack for people who haven't read the book yet, where does hurry fit on the on the timeline of calling and uh, the things that are truly important? And how does a person really get their head around this idea that hurry may be a bigger part of their story than they actually think? Yeah, gosh, so much to talk about, Louis. I was listening to, um, actually, I was interviewing Ronald Rollheiser last summer, and he said something really provocative that I'm still not sure if I agree or disagree with. But he said, we can't learn from Jesus, and he is an avid lover and follower of Jesus. He said, we can't learn from Jesus or the saints how to stay in ministry long term because they all died young. Um, which is he's either they, you know, which is really interesting. I mean, you're not that old, and you've lived almost twice as long as Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that or disagree with it, but it was a provocative thought. But I do think that even if you look at the life of Jesus in the four Gospels as they come to us as biographies designed to teach us not just what to believe about God, but how to live, that's a deep conviction of mine that actually there's a, there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about the lifestyle of Jesus. And yes, there are the moments, the Gethsemane moments, where he's pouring out his life. But even Gethsemane is him in a garden, in quiet prayer alone, with three of his closest friends, emotionally processing his vocation and getting rest before a marathon couple of days that ended in his execution. So hurry, first thing you have to do is just define it, you know? What do you mean by hurry? And whether you want to call it hurry or busyness or over-busyness, it's very important to distinguish between there's a healthy kind kind of busyness in activity, and then there's a toxic or pathological kind of busyness that I would call hurry. The healthy kind is when you just have a lot to do. And in the, by that definition, Jesus was very busy. Jesus had a lot on his plate. He did a lot. 
He accomplished a lot in his short few years. And it just means that your life is generative, that you're not just squandering it, playing Call of Duty and binge watching Netflix every night, that you're giving your life away to something that matters and is meaningful and has eternal implications and you're not wasting the precious gift of your life. And I'm all for, if, if that's what you call busy, I'm all for it. That's great. Jesus, by that definition, was very busy. But there's a second type of busyness that is, I think, very emotionally toxic and spiritually, it's a form of annihilation that is a pathological kind of busyness that I just use the one word moniker of hurry for. And that's very simple. It's not when you have a lot to do. It's when you have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And so the only way to even attempt to get 80% of it in is to speed up your mind, your body, your relationships, your interactions with other people, including with God, to this frenetic pace of 90 miles per hour, go, 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 digital, it's going to space, we're on a freeway, you know, jam-packed living, that I would argue is incompatible with the way of Jesus, with a prayerful life that Jesus called abiding, and with the trifecta in the teachings of Jesus and the writings of Paul, love and joy and peace. I mean, just, just take love. All of my worst moments are when I'm in a hurry. Like as a dad, as a 100%. husband, as a pastor, as a friend. I mean, C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect of how you respond to an interruption is who you really are, which is so painful to hear. But like, you know, interruptions, when I am in a hurry, like they are my worst moments of I'm curt, I'm irritable, I'm not present, I'm distracted, I write people off because I have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I'm going too fast to slow down, to feel your pain, to even make eye contact with you or give you any attention, much less emotion or spiritual life. You know, I'm just, I don't have time. I don't have time for love. I don't have time for prayer. You know, Kosuke Koyama, the Japanese, late Japanese theologian, has this beautiful little essay called Three Mile an Hour God. And I had to Google it. Apparently three miles per hour is the speed of walking. And he just talks about the pace of God and the pace of love and walking with God. He says this beautiful little paragraph where he writes that, you know, there is a speed to love and it's the speed of walking. And if God could go faster, he would, but he can't because he's love. So God has a pace and there's the spiritual pace of God that we see in the life of Jesus, who was really busy, but read the gospels. I mean, half of the stories are about Jesus and interruptions and all the people around him are hurried and we got to go and this crisis is happening and these people want you and there's this opportunity and he's just saying no. He's just slipping away early to pray. He's going off in the desert for weeks at a time. He's having long in-depth conversations with, you know, hurting women in the middle of a crowd when there's all sorts of demand on him. He's letting people die while he's delaying and doing other things. Like I, I just seem so present to the moment, to his body, to the father. He's able to say, I always do what I see the father doing. He's yeah. just so in the moment in tune with what the father is doing, where, how is the spirit hovering over the waters? What, how do I live in the flow of that Trinitarian kind of movement around me, you know? So that as a disciple, as an apprentice of Jesus, that's the pace of life that I see in the life of Jesus that I'm trying to build into my muscle memory through discipleship. Yeah, it's so beautiful. And I think that, you know, the tension comes and I love the way that you set that up, by the way. And I, I really feel like there's gold in that, the difference between good work 
and calling and significance and hurry. And hurry yes. to me feels like it's more about our motive than it is about how much there is for us to do in a given day. It's more about maybe the right. why. Why are we so frantic and yes. why are we so um, so busy, if you want to use that word, or why do we feel like we need so many things to be wedged into a small space? And it feels like the motive is really key. And then I wanted to ask you, do you feel like this has always been a struggle, or do you think the last 10 years of the digitization of humanity has increased this sense of hurry, the negative side of good work? Or do you think it's always been that way? We just are now confronting it on a different level. No, I think 2007 and the release of the iPhone changed human history forever, changed the human person. It's such a key inflection point. You know, I'm sure you read that article a couple of years ago in The Atlantic, Has the iPhone Ruined a Generation? And if not, you can Google it. And there's about seven different just infographics in that article that are so disorienting, where they basically chart things like anxiety, depression, suicide. Um, addiction, and they just show it on a graph over the last, you know, 10 years, 20 years. And it's like the second you hit, it wasn't 2007, it was 2009, which is the year that 50% of people had a smartphone. Yeah. The second you hit that, it's just like this drop off a cliff of people spiraling into anxiety, depression, mental illness, I mean, all this stuff. And it's really like, it's just, it's pretty black and white. When you look at it, you're like, okay, I can't really argue with that. So I do think there's always been that struggle in the heart, like exactly what you said. My mentor says it this way, hurry isn't just the sign of a disordered schedule. It's a sign of a disordered heart, mm-hmm. you know, meaning why are we in a hurry? Some so, And most of the time, if you just have an honest kind of self-evaluation Maybe you're a workaholic and maybe you're driven by greed. You just need more, you want more money than you actually need. Or maybe you're driven by ambition. You want power. Maybe you just want to do really good and you want people to see you. Maybe it's rooted in a father wound and you're trying to prove through your career or your Instagram following or your art or your, you know, whatever it is that you're better, that you're good, that you're enough. Maybe it's fear of, of letting people down and you just can't have people mad at you. And you know, if you say no to this invitation or this thing or this request, some people won't think you're good and you just can't handle that because your identity is so fragile. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be any number of reasons. And these, these are all, by the way, examples out of my own life. So don't think of that. I'm <laughs> criticizing anybody here. I'm just giving you the, the landscape of my own shadow side. Um, but, you know, hurry is often the manifestation of these much deeper, you know, in reformed language, idols of the heart and psychological language, the attachments, the things that we think we need to be happy and at peace. But I do think that something shifted with the phone, with Wi-Fi and a heck of a lot with social media, because all of those little like I'm old enough now that I lived in a pre-iPhone world, pre-digital world, and not a digital native. So I remember this thing from the late 90s that we called boredom, that, uh, that my kids, <laughs> my oldest is a high schooler, like he has no idea what I'm talking about. Boredom? What's that? Like I remember when you'd just be in the car. I remember car drives were like the worst. My kids yeah. love car we gotta drives We got to make now. up games but between here and Florida. We gotta, 
<laughs> oh my gosh, it was so bad. My kids love it because we're we don't have a TV in our house. They don't get to watch much film. So it's like we pull out the iPad and they watch movies. They like love a long car drive. It's great. I just remember it just being bleeding out my eyes, you know? <laughs> but all those little moments of just waiting in line to get a cup of coffee or walking to your car in the parking lot or sitting in church waiting for it to start and the gathering's late or, you know, I mean, I was sitting at the park and watch, like all of those moments were these little potential portals to prayer, to God, to your own soul, to peace. And now pretty much all of those moments have been swallowed up. The first thing we do is just reach for that appendage in our front right pocket and for the phone, you know, and it's just swallowed up and it swallowed us up and embraced us in a digital ecosystem, the majority of which is deeply at a business model technology level is deeply exploitative. It is designed to distract you, addict you, manipulate you and modify your behavior based on your deepest angers and your deepest fears. That is honest. That's, that is not like doomed. That's literally how most of these apps are designed. And that's what we're giving these portals to that we used to give to God and each other and the place around us. So yes, I think we are living through an acute moment. I sure as heck hope that we look back on all of us walking around with our phones now, the way we look back on smoking in the 1940s. I sure hope that's how we look at it, but I'm not, I don't know. So I think we need, I call it the case for a digital asceticism. The way that the church fathers and mothers in the fourth century said, man, this has gotten out of control. We need to get back to fasting and prayer and silence, which I'm still very much for. But we need to, and they called it an asceticism or a discipline. We need to get like a digital asceticism. What does it look like to be digital desert fathers and digital desert mothers and live a quiet, prayerful life with God and each other? It's interesting that when I've tried to communicate any message that is um, that resembles what you're talking about. And this actually happened, uh, maybe this is maybe about five years ago, I was doing a talk with some younger adults in our context here. And I mean, I got like, you know, articulated feedback. So not, I feel like maybe this is, there's some resistance here, but it was articulated and very clearly communicated to me simply like this. That's easy for you to say. And you have no way of understanding my life. And so I feel like personally for me, there has to be a real aggressive approach to the phone. Uh, there ha- yes. it, there is, this isn't a, a casual conversation. There has to be some kind of more aggressive approach. But yes, for me to communicate that, because I lived most of my life in an era where you waited three days for the drugstore to develop your photos. I mean, that was not just my early childhood. That was most of my right. life. And people say, well, you come from a different era and you don't understand. This is all we know. But you're 41, I think, coming up pretty soon. Um, so happy uh, birthday. Tomorrow, actually. It's happy birthday, birthday to yeah. you. That's a, that's a new you. day new season and um and maybe I'm not sure you have the footing to really say that but it feels like there needs to be a breakup not not just a gentle negotiation but some kind of breakup with things the way they are and do you feel like that message can be transferred to a 15 year old 
Or do you think what happened in Portland has to happen personally? There has to be a complete humbling and crumbling of everything until we're ready to go, okay, I need to hear the truth. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I just think we're on the best ground to just think about our relationship to our phones and technology as addiction. And you know what I mean? And just call it what it is. At a neurobiological level, this is like alcoholism or substance addiction. And that is how we need to think about our relationship to it, you know? And not all people are alcoholics, um, but some people are. And they have to approach it very differently than other people. And those that aren't alcoholics, you know, have to be very careful if they drink how they approach a glass of wine or whatever, lest it becomes something that destroys them and they lose the capacity to ever engage with ever again. I mean, one of the reasons, I don't know if you're a teetotaler, forgive me on this, but I grew up in a strong like teetotaler, you know, family. So I didn't even taste a sip of alcohol until I was 31 years old. So now I'll have a glass of wine, but I'm really careful because I enjoy it so much. I don't ever want to become an alcoholic where I can't have it anymore. <laughs> so that's part of my motivation. <laughs> My point is, um, I think we have to think about it as addiction. And I think the onus of responsibility right now is on parents. I don't know how many parents are listening. Um, you know, uh, we've just chosen to live very differently as a family. And honestly, this is what secular elites are doing right now. Silicon Valley secular elites are doing. And I'm not that. I'm just saying this is not just like crazy Christians who read books about the Amish, you know. But I think there's a massive responsibility on us as parents to raise up our children in digital free spaces. You know, so this, I'm not saying this is what you should do. I'm just saying, I'm only saying this to give you permission that it is an option. I have three kids. They live right in the urban core of a cool city. They're cool, artistic, popular kids starting bands and stuff like that. And our rule is zero phone until 16. And then it's a, it's a flip phone and no smartphone until 18. And we encourage you to never, ever use social media unless if you have to for your job. And if so, three months before college so we can disciple you in how to use this and not let it destroy your soul. But we encourage you to never do it. And that's like, that's just what we said. We told them that when they were young. And, you know, they were great about it. There's a pain, you know, interacting with my oldest boy because there's a lack of depth in all of his friends. He's like, he said to me the other day, almost with tears in his eyes, he's like, dad, they just have their phone open all the time. They like, their whole life is on TikTok. And it's like, they just give one word answers. They can't like talk to me. And so most of his friends are all like significantly older because they're the only ones he can have any depth of relationship with. So there's a pain for him. But yet, if you met him, he's not without his issues, but he has this <laughs> wonderful soul of depth and, you know, relationship and in tune with his emotions. He's wonderful. So I, I say that not as prescriptive, just I think sometimes parents need permission. Like I remember one of my best secular friends in town, another family, I got to know them because um, they're, one of their kids became best friends with one of my kids. And we started hanging out. And these are lovely people, but very secular, not at all Christians. Um, they're very successful. They run an advertising agency. Their kids got scholarships to Stanford, like kind of creative class leaders in Portland kind of thing. 
And I found out they basically didn't let their kids have any phones until they were 18. Absolutely no social media. And this is like a very liberal, wonderful, but very liberal, very secular family. I'm like, oh, if they can do it, (laughs) they're not even Christians. And they're like very liberal about all sorts of things, you know, but they're like, no, but not the phone. I'm like, okay, that, that gave me permission. This was years ago say, oh, I, I don't have to do this just because everybody else is doing it. So there might be three parents listening to this. I have no idea. But I do think there's an onus of responsibility on parents. And for the rest of us, I mean, what I try to encourage people to do in our church, and we do this, we actually do this as a church, is to craft a digital rule of life so that you self-generate. We have a bunch of examples that we encourage people in where you, you know, write it up on paper and you commit to accountability with some other people you hold each other to it, which you, I do the same thing with my budget. I do my budget with a couple guys in my community every year and we show each other our budgets and we hold each other accountable to it and we're honest with each other. So there's, a, there's accountability around temptations with money. And uh, I, I think that's just, I'm now approaching the phone. So here's our digital rule of life and we have, we have boundaries around it so that these things work for us and we don't work for them. It's the whole Seth Godin thing. You know, you're not the customer. You think you're the customer, but you're the product. When you go on Instagram or whatever, you're not paying $10 a month. You know, it's free because you're the product. What's being sold is your attention, your views of the world, your political opinions, your emotional outburst, your shopping habits, your behavior. That's what's being sold. So um, we have to subvert that. I love that you use the word your attention, and I. this is something that I've been really thinking a lot about recently. Obviously, I think that's maybe the greatest gift that we have that we undervalue is our attention. To give someone the gift of our attention is yes. most times better than giving them what they need financially or um, helping them out in a practical way, uh, to actually just give someone your attention for yes. a moment or for several moments. But then too, John Mark, to realize I was created to give God my attention, that that's the greatest yes. gift I can give to God is, yes, yes, my affection, yes, my love, yes, my worship. But I can't give him my affection, my love, or my worship if he doesn't have Without my attention. attention. And so I've been really thinking a lot more lately, and I want—I I wish we could talk for the rest of the day, but I'm going to kind of land us here in a moment. But let's talk just for a moment about attention. We talk about the attention deficit disorders. We talk about short attention span, how the whole yes. culture seems to be ADD now, and if you weren't before, you are now. It's a byproduct of living in the digital world. But God is beautiful. He's matchless. He's stunning and overwhelming. He's captivating and fulfilling and a bit addictive because of all of those (laughs) things. And when he created us. He created us with the ability to see all that and to experience it. And what my highest function, I think, in life is, is giving God my attention. And it honors Him, but I, I've discovered it also does something really fantastic for me. 
So it's never an either yeah. or with God. It's never serve me, love me, adore me, worship me, or go do whatever makes you happy. It's like, no, that is what makes me happy. And so let's talk about attention just for a moment and how you, you use the phrase being present. I think there's similar concepts because you talk about being present in life, being present with people, being present with yourself, being present with your soul, being present with God. Is that similar to being able to learn how to direct your attention towards God? And how could you, how would you encourage someone listening today that this is maybe the most important thing you can do in your life is learn how to set your attention on God. I love the psalmist, and he said, um, I've set the Lord continually before me because he is right. at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Right. Therefore, right. my tongue will rejoice. My, my mm-hmm. heart will be happy. And then the one we're all looking for, my flesh, literally my body will dwell yes. or rest securely. Yes, beautiful. Yeah, you know, the poet Mary Oliver said, attention is the beginning of devotion. And I think attention is the beginning of all worship. And I think of that psalm, you know, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That, that's the best one-sentence description of prayer that I can think of. I grew up in a church tradition where prayer was narrowly defined as petition, mm-hmm. you know, as asking God for things, which is an aspect of prayer, a beautiful aspect. But man, I think I've fallen in love with prayer over the last decade, realizing that that is an aspect of prayer. But I think the middle of the river, the current, the, the deep end is what, you know, in the Christian tradition is called contemplation, yeah. which might sound a little weird depending on what church tradition you're from. All that means is to contemplate God, it's based on, you know, 2 Corinthians 3, that as we contemplate the Lord's glory, which, and I, I think glory is a, is a way of saying God's presence and his beauty, that can actually be translated his beauty. As we contemplate the Lord's presence and his beauty, we are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. I mean, I read this whole, I read two things back to back. One, I read this little essay by a a writer out of, I think it was Singapore, actually it was Hong Kong, named Hui Hui Tong. And she had this beautiful line where she just said, you are what you contemplate. Mm-hmm. You become what you give your attention to, whether that's God or the New York Times or Fox News or, social, or Instagram, you will become what you contemplate, what you give your attention to, what you let through the eyes and into your, into your heart in the language of the scripture. And then I read this great little book by an agnostic called, um, I think it was called This Is Your Brain on God. And he just did all the neuroscience behind like mere neurons and what's happening when you are in contemplation. And he basically wasn't a Christian, but was like, everybody should do Christian contemplation. When you just sit and you gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and you, you set your inner heart in the language of the scripture, your attention onto this Trinitarian community of self-giving, generous, joyful, peaceful, creative agape at the center of all reality, the center of like 
everything at the center of your own body is this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just giving love to one another and delight and joy and generosity and self-giving and mutuality. You just set your attention on that beauty and you will actually slowly but surely over many, many years, if not decades, become more like that Trinitarian community that we call Father, Son, and Spirit, that we call God. As for how to do that, you know, I, I, I think the solution is a lot easier and a lot harder than most people want. It's easy in that it, you don't need a PhD. You don't need to read any of my books. You don't need to <laughs> take a master's degree. Like it's actually pretty straightforward. It's just work. It's, or not even work. It's just time. It's just, it's something you do. You have to cultivate attention as like a mental, emotional muscle that you have to not let atrophy, but build in your body. So I think you do that at a spiritual level through spiritual disciplines like reading scripture and prayer and spiritual reading, even listening to some you know good podcasts or sermons can help with that. And then even beyond that, there's a philosopher of media who's dead now, but I've read a lot of his stuff named Albert Borgman. I don't know if you've come across him. Mm-mm. He was up in Montana and he, he was one of the most prolific kind of thinkers about how media has impacted our society. And his prescription, his antidote for how to resist the deformative effects of everything from TV to Instagram is what he called focal practices, which are just any kind of practice that bring you to kind of a focal point that bring you naturally to presence, you know, what some call flow, where you kind of lose track of time a little bit and you're not thinking about the past or the future. You're just there. That could be cooking or baking or gardening or hiking or doing, you know, or cycling, it could be, you know, or reading or listening to music or playing your guitar or playing the drums in your basement. It could be, you you don't have to make it spiritual per se, but Mm. I've been trying to do a lot of those because you're building the same muscle. So like, you know, a couple of days ago, I was really scattered. I'd had a really stressful week. It was, I was outside of my rule of life and that's, it just happens. Like sometimes you get hurried, no matter how (laughs) writing a book about hurry does not make you not struggle with it anymore. It turns out. I had this really bad week. I just out of my rhythms. And I had a day where I had about a half day off. And my, my nervous system was all jacked. I could, couldn't really focus. It was hard for me to even pray. I'm like, I need to do some things to like get my body grounded again. So I went for a, a walk in the forest by my house. That is like where I go. And I just tried to pay attention to every tree I could. And then I came home and this is the weirdest thing. I don't ever play cards. I'm not, it's not that kind of a person, <laughs> but there was a card deck line up for money kids. And I, I played solitaire. I played five rounds of solitaire because it just brought me to the moment. And I was actually doing that because I want to enjoy God more in prayer. But right now my brain is so scattered. I mm. can't. So a couple things, a walk in the forest, playing solitaire. And I did a little bit of reading, just helping me. These are all focal practices mm-hmm. for me, just helping me kind of learn to be present. And as you're building that muscle, it'll really carry over into your prayer life. Um, And the inverse is true. If you're building the opposite muscle, constant distraction, you know, and everything's super fast and you're on social media all the time, you're on the internet, you're watching Netflix, and then you sit down to try to read an ancient library that we call the Bible and pray and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, your brain (laughs) has been habituated by a thousand other things to not have the capacity to experience God. Yeah. And what is prayer but attention on God? So I think we have to think holistically beyond just our morning quiet time, which is essential, a whole life where focal practices, spiritual and just embodied, 
mm-hmm. are built in as counter discipleship, counter resistance to the digital age. Yeah, those who stay in step by the Spirit are led by the Spirit, mm. or those who are led by the Spirit, to flip it the other way, stay in step with the Spirit. And I think that oh, that's that. just the simplicity of how to do life. And to me, I, I love the idea that Jesus walked everywhere He went, but I can't relate to it. And so I have to have a different <laughs> paradigm. Uh, and, and so I've learned that the Spirit actually, he, he actually in Scripture would transport people like Philip from one place to the other. And so he, he moves at all kinds of speeds. And so it's not really about what speed am I going at today. It's about whether I'm staying in step with the Spirit today, because He is not yes. going to um, mistreat me. Uh, because he's right. a good shepherd, and he mm. he knows how to take care of me. I love that the book is a little bit of a metaphor, because it when you when you look at it, when you pick it up, you think it's going to be heavier than it is, because it's part of the new printing technology, where mm-hmm. it actually is about three times lighter than your mind thinks it's going to be when you see it sitting there, <laughs> and it's a little bit of a, oh my word, that was like picking up Nothing. I'm reading this um, yes. book about uh, the life of Michelangelo right now that is paperback, and it's a little thicker than this. It weighs about three times as much as this, and it's smaller book. <laughs> and um, it's so I think for people who don't know, um, the book is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, John Mark has a lot of great books, um, Garden uh, to City is um, a great read, um, God Has a Name. A new book that you have coming out uh, any day now, uh, Live No Lies, is the new release that's coming out. But this book um, is a big, big message, but it's a light book. And I think that Mm. is a really, really beautiful, paradoxical, Mm. tactical expression. And I didn't get into today your book design, but I'm a big fan and a little bit jealous <laughs> that I haven't yet published a book that's as cool as one of yours on the design oh, side. Oh, your because, last book is gorgeous. Because I live, uh, I came from a design culture. My dad was a designer, a graphic designer, and that's in my blood. And uh, the smell of an art studio is in my deep, deep memory somewhere. But the way that you have chosen to uh, actually express the words that are changing people's lives is as powerful as the words themselves, in my opinion, because I think a Mm. lot of people see the message before they hear the message, and what they see in your message is really beautiful, and then what they hear is very freeing and powerful. So Mm. I just want to say thanks for being generous with your time today, and thanks for giving our listeners on... Um, on this podcast your attention for some time today and thank you for stewarding well um, the philosophy that the disciplines still matter they did in the beginning they did to the desert fathers they did to Jesus they do to us and life is meant to be lived in a rhythm so thank you for that and um, Blessings on your transition. I know you're transitioning into a new role now of really wanting to serve the the broader church and pray great favor on you and on Tammy and the family and and for Portland, I believe, with you for great days. I know you guys had a big turning point for your church just in speaking over the city just recently. And 
Um, pray that Portland will know the fame, the name, the glory, this beauty that you're talking about. They'll see Jesus yeah. and come to know and love him. So thank you yes. for being on today. Appreciate you yes, so much. Lord, may it be so. It's such an honor to come along. Thank you for your life, your leadership, your example for those of us coming up. You seem so much younger than you are to me. So you're such a gift. Uh, your vitality, wisdom, legacy, reputation is such a gift to me. Thank you. Thanks, John Mark. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning into my conversation with John Mark Comer. Wow, there was a lot of gold in that episode. I'm so grateful for all he's doing for the global church. And I hope this conversation encourages all of us to put our attention back on the one who is worthy of it and to stay in step with the Spirit as we lead through each day. Hope you have an amazing week. 